This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Like I said, it's America's the greatest country in the world. Uh, Memorial Day weekend. I I hope you have a a, a meaningful Memorial Day weekend. We're going to play tribute to our fallen service members with a segment or two coming up a little later. I have a story to share. It's it's I don't it's one of the best stories I've ever heard. It's it's so it's so good. I'll tell you, I was preparing it the other day. I'll admit, crying, and my wife walked in, she's like, What's wrong? I said, it's just the best story I've ever read in my life. So I'll share it with you coming up in a little bit. I want to start here though. Uh, I want to combine two stories from the last few days. Because they're the same principle. And you know, if you listen to the show a lot, when you deal with principles, uh, it relates to everything, right? So we can talk about seemingly different topics, but they all relate to the same principles. And this is a similar thing. So I'm sure you saw yesterday or the other day, more undercover Planned Parenthood videos. And these are by the same guys who are you know, charged with 15 counts of felony in California for recording undercover video, which by the way, they will not be charged with because they did not break the law. But... We'll save that for another day. But anyway, they, they released some new videos. Um, this is the medical director of Planned Parenthood of Michigan. She said, given that we actually see the fetus the same way, and given that we might actually both agree that there's violence here, let's just give them, the pro-life people, let's just give them all the violence. It's a person. It's killing. Let's just give them all that. Director of Abortion Services of Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast. And by the way, this is in, these are in um, like uh, conferences, right? So there's like a panel discussion and they're up on stage and there's, you know, 10 of these people and they get the microphone. So this isn't a private one-on-one conversation. These are, this is a public event. Uh, Abortion Services, Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast. If I'm doing a procedure and I'm seeing that I'm in fear that it's about to come to the navel, I might ask for a second set of forceps to hold the baby at the cervix and pull off a leg or two so it's not a partial birth abortion. This is Abortion Services Director of Planned Parenthood in New York City. We certainly do intact dilation and extractions. That's a partial birth abortion. That's illegal. Uh, This is the founder of a different abortion group. An eyeball just fell down into my lap, and that is gross. And the crowd laughs. An eyeball just fell into my lap. 
And that is gross. It's weird. I, th- I thought it was just a clump of cells. We'll stop there. You get the idea. Uh, these people are uh, very deceived. So I want to tie this into the most recent terrorist attack in Manchester. The morning after, I guess it would be two mornings after because it happened at night and once we found out the people who were killed. So it was two mornings after. Every newspaper in England had the same picture on their front cover. Every single one. It was the picture of the eight-year-old girl who was killed by the terrorist. Now, I don't know if you got a chance to watch TV news. We're going we're gonna to talk, uh, talk about some cable news stuff coming up in a little bit. And I think when we share this story in a little, it'll change how you watch cable news. I hope it does. But Chris Matthews on MSNBC, they did, you know, when the show started, they did a quick little, uh, you know, explosions in Manchester. Right? They're calling it the Manchester explosion as if, you know, like a pipe burst or an air conditioning unit exploded by accident somehow. The Manchester explosion, not the terrorist attack, but the Manchester explosion like a spontaneous combustion just occurred. Some people happened to be standing nearby. So they did a quick little intro, and then Chris Matthews said, we'll get to the latest on that in a minute. But first, the shocking news in Washington tonight. And it was about Trump and Russia. Click over to CNN. Got someone on there talking about how right-wing extremists have tried to frame Muslims with recent terrorist attacks, and you're like, what, what, what are you talking about? When has that ever happened? The next morning, Stephanopoulos talking to Martha Raddatz about how this is likely to inflame anti-Islamic sentiment across Europe. And Martha Raddatz says, yes, it will likely create backlash. No, it won't. It never does. That's the point. It never does. American media has not shown the face well, the face is of the 22 people killed and has not shown the face of that eight-year-old little girl. So what's amazing about our lack of response to this attack. Oh, no, I'm, I'm sorry. There's plenty of response. Um, you know, candlelight vigils, change your Facebook profile picture. Uh, well, we used to light buildings up the colors of the flag where the terrorist attack occurred, but now we turn the lights off of buildings and that's supposed to that's supposed to make them stop. And uh, I don't know if anyone has video of anyone uh, playing and singing Imagine on a random piano on a sidewalk. But usually, like that, that usually happens after every terrorist attack. So, so we, we respond. That's, that's how we respond to terrorist attacks. And then they just happen over and over again, shockingly. But our lack of actual response after these terrorists target and kill Little girls. The fact that that doesn't get a rise out of us. That's the worst part of all. As if killing innocent adults isn't bad enough. The fact that these terrorists target and kill little girls and we're still brushing it off. Here's the bottom line. Men protect women. Adults protect kids. Follow that. Men protect women. Adults protect kids. So it's logical that men protect little girls. Right? Adult men protect children, girls, who will one day, if they're not killed by terrorists, grow up to become women, and men protect women. See how that works? Remember the San Bernardino terrorist attack? 
we told the story of Shannon Johnson, a 45-year-old man who, when the terrorists came in and started firing, everyone falls to the ground. He peeks his head up and he sees just a, a couple feet away a 27-year-old coworker, female. And amid the gunfire, he crawls over to her and covers her. He gets on top of her and covers her and says, I got you. He died. She survived. That's how it works. It should never work any other way. The boy goes down. The girl goes free. We know it's true. We know it's true. Don't deny it. If in your brain right now you're thinking of scenarios, do not deny it. If there's a bump in the night, there's not a man or not, not a decent man in the country who hides under his blanket and says to his wife, baby, go check that out. Remember the Aurora, uh, Colorado Batman movie theater shooting? There were men under the age of 30 who jumped on their girlfriends to save their lives. There were three men who did this. They were killed and the three girlfriends survived. Not wives, not sisters, girlfriends. Because they know deep down, rooted inside all of us, the boy goes down and the girl goes free. Men are hardwired to protect. So let's apply that principle, which we all know to be true to these two different topics. We'll bring it to abortion first. Like, imagine, imagine if there was a shooting and you used your baby to shield yourself from the bullets. Like, that's, that's impossible to fathom. That would never happen. Like, that's so absurd. Like, that visual of someone firing at you so you pick your baby up to protect yourself. Like, what are you talking about? So, like, that's absurd and we all know it. But now imagine willfully ripping apart a baby in someone's womb. It should be equally impossible to imagine. But it happens about a million times a year. And men should be outraged. Men should be outraged. Now let's bring it to the terrorist attack. The fact that this attack targeted little girls, the manly protector side in all of us, everyone in England, everyone in America, everyone in the Western world should say, all right, guys, way too far. It's all too far. Don't get me wrong. But at least you can kind of say like, all right, the terrorist attack in Chattanooga, it was an attack on the military, like totally cowardly and all the rest, obviously. But you're like, all right, military attack. Look at the Orlando terrorist attack. That was an attack on gay people and everyone freaked. But an attack on little girls? And people, MSNBC feels like, it still feels like it's not as important as the latest with Trump and Russia. That is messed up. I don't care about your defined gender roles and how we need to re-question gender roles and he, she, z, different pronouns, nonsense. The boy goes down, the girl goes free. And the fact that they target these little girls and still doesn't get a rise out of us, we are dead already. We are dead already. one 900 3393 Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word you're listening to Mike Slater on the blaze radio network
Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Is Mike Slater. On Thursday morning, I had the chance to go speak to a, a group of sixth graders, 64 sixth graders at a local school. And we talked about Memorial Day, and it was great. I was really nervous to talk to sixth graders. I've talked to younger kids, I've talked to high schoolers, but never sixth graders. A wild card about sixth graders. But they were perfect. They were awesome. They're super sweet and well behaved and engaged. I, I talked to a friend of mine. He's a former principal of K through six. And I ran by some of those. I told three stories of, of, um, of service members and they're kind of heavy. Like it was kind of a lot. And one of them was about the baton death march. And I was like, can six graders handle this? And he's like, Oh yeah, they can. And they just picked up every single note. It was, it was so much fun. Anyway, um, I kicked off saying, Oh, you know, it's great to be here. Uh, I've never talked to a group of six graders. Uh, and, you know, I'm a new dad. I have a seven-month-old at home. Every single girl. There, so imagine, there's 65, 64 sixth graders. Uh, they're all sitting Indian style or crisscross applesauce uh, in, uh, on the carpet. And I go, you know, I got a seven-month-old at home. Every single girl goes, Aww. hilarious. And I go, hey, guys, come on, where's the awe? And they're like, oh, <laughs> There was another moment I was uh, telling a story. You've heard it before. It's about Jesse Brown and Tom Hudner. And the, the real general short of it is it was like a scene out of the notebook. And there's a, the man is dying. Jesse's dying. And uh, Tom has to make a choice. Do I leave now or do I stay and die with my best friend? And he was deciding what to do. And he turns around and the guy who's stuck, Jesse, says, Tom, tell my wife I love her. And the sixth grade girls, they literally clutched their chests. They, they put both their hands over their heart and went, oh. it was, I was like, oh my gosh, you totally got that story. Good for you guys, right? Okay, so that was the girls. Then the boys, they reacted to the stories of heroism, the, uh, the stories of call to arms. I told the story of Bud Fink, World War II uh, veteran who, when he heard about Pearl Harbor on the radio in his house, never heard of it before. And I think he was in Ohio. I was like, well, why would, why, if you ever lived in Ohio in 1941, why would you have heard of Pearl Harbor in Ohio? I'd never heard of it. But after he heard what happened, he left his house, went right downtown to the local recruitment center, and the line was around the block. Totally around the block. So he stands in line, and it gets dark out, and the recruitment guys come out, and they say, all right, everyone, we're going home for the night. Go home. Come back tomorrow. No one moved. Not only did no one move, but the moms went home. They made soup and brought back soup and blankets to the men waiting in line to join the military, to fight for America, to protect our honor. 
There was nothing that was going to stop them from doing that. And every single boy, every single sixth grader in the room stood tall when I told that story. They loved the call to arms. I bring this up because these are natural reactions that boys and girls have, that men and women have to things. And I saw it as pure as can be in these sixth graders three days ago. So let me just apply it to the stories we were just talking about with abortion. It is a woman's natural state to love and nurture. It is a woman's natural, natural instinct to love and to nurture. It is a man's natural instinct to protect. I'm not saying men can't love and nurture and women can't protect as well, but just go with it. If women or men are not doing that thing, then there's something that's preventing that from happening properly. There's something in the way. Fear. Guilt. Anger. Mostly fear in this situation, probably. But the solution to this is not to go against every natural instinct. It's not to go with the fear. It's not to let the guilt take over. It's not to bathe in anger because you're feeling these things. The solution is to work through the fear and then let the natural instincts reveal themselves and thrive. Act on those. If someone's not acting on those, then there's something in the way. Get rid of the thing in the way. Women nurture, men protect. Abortion is the opposite of these instincts. And for these female doctors that we just talked about a second ago in this new undercover video, these female doctors to joke and laugh about how difficult it is to rip apart a fetus and how gross it is to have an eyeball fall into your lap. Women doctors. For men to not fight to save babies' lives. There's, there's, there's so much deceit going on in their minds. There's something in the way of their natural instincts and they don't even see it. They don't even know it. Well, some do. They all do. <laughs> it just depends how good you are at ignoring it on purpose. I talked to one abortion doctor who performed abortions for years, but he finally realized how strange it was that he would be in one room in his office talking to a woman about all the lengths they were going to go through to save her baby's life. And the woman is distraught and upset and they're praying and, and he's, I'm going to do everything I can. And then he would literally walk across the hallway and then no exaggeration. He would open the door of that one patient like and close the door behind him, walk across the hallway, open up another door and there'd be a woman in there. He'd perform an abortion. She's like, what, what am I doing? And he couldn't take it anymore. He did it for years, but he knew something was wrong the whole time. So he said, all right, well, what am I, what's, what am I doing? Am I, am I like, which is wrong is saving babies lives wrong or is taking babies lives wrong. One of these is wrong. So I'm going to stop doing one of them. And he chose properly. The point of the segment is to say that the people who do this, who have abortions, they're, they're not evil. It's that there are uh, fears and emotions crowding out the truth in them and making the, their instincts difficult to, to shine. And the goal of our society needs to be to help people to make it through their fear, to work through their fear, and let their natural ingrained instincts 
and again, because I'm doing two, two topics on this one principle with terrorism, the fact that these terrorists targeted, targeted gay people, then there was the terrorists targeted little girls. Just be for real, like with uh, Orlando. They can target, kill little girls. And hmm, what's the best we do? Candlelight vigil? It's fine. Candlelight vigil is fine to mourn. It's so, so it, candlelight vigil is for the past and maybe for the present, but it's certainly not for the future. Still no action. Like what, what would they have to do? I think, I think they'd have to, like terrorists have to blow up a puppy mill or something. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like that would be the only thing that would really get people's attention. What more do they have to do? I bet they're ticked off. ISIS is ticked off. Like what do we have to do to get the people mad at us? I know. Let's kill a bunch of little girls. Nope. Didn't work. Amazing. 1-888-933-93. I want to come back with um, a clip from Mark Stein. He did a debate a couple months ago. Really good about immigration and culture. I think it's relevant here. We'll play that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Listening to Mike Slater. Slater, do you remember a while back? Must have been. I think it was right when he became president or something. Um, Trump made a comment about Sweden. Remember, he said, uh, "You know, we got to keep our country safe." You look at what's happening. We've got to keep our country safe. You look at what's happening in Germany. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden. Who would believe this? Sweden. They took in large numbers. They're having problems like they never thought possible. You look at what's happening in Brussels. You look at what's happening all over the world. Remember that quote? And he was mocked just incessantly by the left, a smug mockery about what happened in Sweden last night. Right? They couldn't. They, they focused on on that line. He remember he said, "Look at what's happening last night in Sweden." Now, the verb tense there is all screwed up. <laughs> what's happening last night? That doesn't make sense. Happening is an active verb. It's happening, like it's going on right now but nothing can be happening last night. It happened last night, but it couldn't, it couldn't have happening last night. That doesn't make sense. So because the left, the press, the media, they tra- take Trump literally. They don't take him seriously. They're looking for reasons to mock him. They, of course, assume the worst about that sentence. And they say nothing happened in Sweden last night. There was no attack in Sweden last night. There was nothing in Sweden last night. Well, what Trump was talking about was a Fox News report that he saw last night about the rise of rape in Sweden. The happening was in reference to the large numbers of refugees who are coming in. It's sloppy, sloppy talk, but of course they assume the worst. And they jumped on the, you know what, terrorist guy, what an idiot. Well, do you remember, like, it was the next day, there were a bunch of riots in Sweden. So Trump actually turned out to be right, but that's neither here nor there. In light of the terrorist attack in Manchester, 
the other day. I want to play the clip here of a debate that it was between two progressives and two conservatives. I actually want to play more from this debate coming up in the, in the weeks to come because it's really good. But this part here uh, relates. So two progressives, two conservatives. The conserv- It doesn't matter who the progressives are. It's like someone from the UN and some professor. And the con- Sorry, it doesn't matter who the progressives are. The conservatives are Nigel Farage, who is the leader of Brexit, and Mark Stein. So I want to play a clip here of Mark Stein. I think this is his opening statement. Uh, so here it is. In that he talks about Madame Ardor. Madame Ardor is one of the progressives in the debate. So that's who he's referencing, one, one of the people he's debating against when he says Madame Ardor. All right, 1377. Here's. Do we have the clip, man? Son of a gun. Do we uh, do we not have the clip? This is where I sing to fill the time. Should I should I just tell everyone what he says? All right, keep trying. Just let me. If I can hear it, I'll stop talking. Um, we'll try to figure this out by the next break if we don't get it. But the main point at the end, because I don't want to steal anything he says in the beginning, because it's so good, and only Mark Stein could say it this way. But at the end. He says, Madam Ardor, I'd love to know what parts of, it's about immigration in, in Europe, what parts of Sudanese culture you would love to bring to England? I would love to know what part of Yemen's culture would you love to bring to England? What part of Saudi Arabia's culture would you love to bring to England? Is it the child brides? Is it the forced marriage? Is it throwing gay people off buildings. What, what, which, which of these things would you love to see come to the Western world? Do you think we have it? Okay, let's go here. Madame Arbour was the first prosecutor ever to charge rape as a crime against humanity. Uh, in 2007, she published an important report uh, on the use of rape in Sudan as a weapon of war. It was a distressing report. She documented 15 individual cases of sexual assault, including rape, and victims as young as 14. If Madame Arbour were to publish a similar report on Germany today, she'd be able to cite more than 500 cases from just one night in just one town, Cologne on New Year's Eve, and victims as young as three, three years old, a three-year-old raped by a migrant. A seven-year-old girl was gang-raped by five migrants in Hamburg just a few days ago. On Wednesday, a schoolgirl was gang-raped on the ferry from Sweden uh, to Finland. Migrant rights now trump children's rights. What a pity Madame Arbour's successor at the UN isn't interested in producing a report on that rape epidemic. The police chief of Vienna has advised women that it's no longer safe to go out unaccompanied. Migrant rights trump the right to freedom of movement. It's easy to shrug, oh, well, it's just a few disabled kids, just anecdotes. So forget the anecdotes and run the numbers. In Europe, with unaccompanied minors, 90% are male, which means that in one year, Swedish adolescents now have a more distorted uh, sex differential than China does after 30 years of its totalitarian 
one-child policy. In China, there are 119 boys for every girl. Among Swedish adolescents, just from the last year's importation, it is now 123 boys for every girl. That's a fact, a fact of life. And I hope tonight we'll put aside the sentimentalism uh, that often attends this subject and stick with the facts. Madame Arbour said some things that uh, I agree with. She said recently, why are we always talking about the danger that these people will transform us? They may transform us for the better. So she and I agree that immigration on this scale is transformative. The only difference is that Madame Arbour thinks it's for the better, and I don't. And I'm genuinely curious to know what aspects of Afghan and Syrian and Sudanese culture uh, that uh, she would like us to be transformed by. Women's rights, fast-track justice whereby gays get thrown off rooftops, polygamy, child brides, clitoridectomies, the bracing commitment to free speech. I would like an answer on that from Madame Arbour tonight. Thank you very much. It's great stuff because that crowd is not, uh, not a conservative crowd and they're still applauding the Mark, Stein, Mark Stein's opening statements. So, so my point is here, it's possible. I, I want to start here. I'm not, I'm not even going to say it as a declarative fact. I'm going to say it is possible, and let's just get as many people on this bandwagon as possible. It's possible that cultures are incompatible. I'll give an example uh, that I'm fascinated by. So a couple of friends of mine have been to Afghanistan, and, and they've told me this, that we live in America, we live in a guilt-based culture. So we have an inner conscience that tells us when we do something wrong. Right? That conscience tells us not to do this bad thing. So that's us, and, and that's the Western world generally. A guilt-based culture. In Afghanistan, they have a shame-based culture where nothing you do is wrong until you're caught. And if you do something wrong, even though there's no concept of that, the first rule is don't get caught. You must always bluff your way through it. The last thing you do is admit you did something wrong because then you'll be publicly shamed. So there is no inner conscience directing your actions. It's entirely based off of will I get caught. So it's guilt-based versus shame-based. So what happens in this culture is no one's ever honest. And because you know this about yourself, you then never trust anyone else. You're suspicious of everyone. So you take someone from a shame-based culture, which relies on getting away with things. There's no concept of honesty. It doesn't exist. Now, there's other concepts that, that there may be stronger, like loyalty. Like they're very strong with loyalty, but not with honesty, right? But so there's different aspects, but I'm just taking this one. So let's say you're from a shame-based culture, no such thing as honesty, and, and it relies on getting away with things. And that person moves into a guilt-based culture, America, England, wherever, which relies on trust. It doesn't work. That just doesn't work. Something's got to give. Now, call me an Islamophobe or a bigot or whatever, but I feel like the person moving into a foreign location needs to try and, and acclimate to the place they're moving to and change and become more like that culture. But, and this is the point, many refugees don't. The reason I talked about Sweden in the beginning of the segment is I got to take a break here, but I want to come back and play a video from Ami Horowitz who went to uh, parts of Sweden that had been taken over by, by Muslim refugees. And he goes around and he asks, uh, 
he asks people a couple questions, but the one I want to play is, you know, what do you think about all these rapes that are going on in Muslim uh, uh, in uh, Sweden? You know, Sweden per capita is as the second most rapes of any other country in the world behind Laos in Africa. That's it. Laos and then Sweden. What the heck? So he's asking people, you know, what's the blame for this rise in, in, uh, in rapes? You're not going to believe what they say. Unbelievable. I'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. So uh, Ami Horowitz goes to Sweden, asks Swedish people if the rise in rape and sexual assaults is a Muslim problem. Here, what's the, here's what they say. Do you think the sexual assault problem is an Islamic problem or, no, or not? No, really? no, I think it's um, a general problem among, among men. Yeah, the problem isn't like this culture or that culture. The problem is male culture. I don't think the immigrants is the problem. No, it's not. Like, that's just a, like a tiny, tiny bit of the problem. And like, when that happen happens, like it's because we didn't like uh, bring uh, bring them in in the right way. And I don't see that connection at all. And I would very much like to see the evidence of such a connection. Do you think it's it's almost racist to make that connection? Yes, I think so. Is there a point where you think that? Sweden done too much to bring people in or do you think there's no there is no too much in helping people and is there a limit do you think to how many immigrants Sweden can take no no okay um so why 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 are there why is Sweden the number two rape country in the world behind Laos uh so the Swedish politicians say that people are more likely to report it now than ever before for some reason. So, so they say rape always used to be this high, but just now we're learning more about it, which is a strange excuse admitting that this is normal Swedish behavior. Um, second, they say that the laws have changed so that more crimes are classified as sexual assault than ever before. So again, they're saying that rape's always been this high. My third favorite is that they say Swedish men can't handle, handle increased equality between the sexes. And then react with more violence against women. That's that one's rich. We don't have time to go into not only race, but they're, they're horrific assaults happening all the time. Mark Stein referenced a gang rape on a ferry, and all the headlines in the local newspaper said several Swedish men suspected of rape on the ferry, and uh, Swedish men, several Swedish men, and uh, they were seven Somalis and one Iraqi. None of, none of them were Swedish. And then the newspapers were asked why they referred to these males as Swedish, and the newspaper said it was irrelevant. Again, it's a male problem. Anything to say it's not a Muslim problem. Just And one last example here of how political correctness can, can blind us. There was a music festival in Sweden. There is a music festival. 
And last year, 35 girls between the ages of 12 and 17 said that they were sexually assaulted at the festival by foreign youths. This is their own words. Five women were raped. And these are just the women who reported it, right? So what would happen is a group of migrants would surround a girl in two circles and the animals in the middle circle or the, the, the smallest circle would assault the girl while the other men or in the outer circle would distract it all and make it look like just a normal crowd. It was so blatant that bands, including Mumford and Sons, the most popular band, said they will not, they will not play at this festival again until this is brought under control. And I just want to be clear, it's the police who say that these are young men, young foreign men, young men who are foreigners. And they're not talking about Germans. And they arrested two boys in these assaults last year. Both of them live in a nearby asylum center for unaccompanied refugee children. Now, I'm not going to say that they're, they're not trying to stop it because the police, in response to all this, they've started a new program. Yeah, it's a new program. They, the police, they hand out bracelets that say don't molest on them. The, bra- the bracelets, they say don't, they say don't molest. <laughs> like regular people are molesting all the time and they're going to look at their bracelet and be like, oh, I guess I'll, uh, I guess I'll stop. Right, so do you see how political correctness blinds us to reality and makes us so stupid? And we're doing the same thing with these terrorist attacks as well. Doing everything we can to repress the obvious. Even as I was saying earlier, a targeted attack on little girls. And we're still blaming something. There's an article in Slate that literally blamed male patriarchy. Something about Ariana Grande is... is, propped up by male patriarchy and girls go to the concert and the terrorist was targeting male patriarchy and girls got caught. I was like, some like, what are you talking about? Anything to avoid the obvious. It's wild how, how deep the, uh, the desire to be ignorant is. Coming up next, I want to talk about why 26% of Americans are atheists. That's next. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you so much for being here. Um, new survey found that uh, 26% of Americans are atheists. Pretty simple question. Uh, do you believe in God? 26% said no. So that's the highest in uh, you know recent surveys in the last few generations. Usually it's about 10%. Usually hovers around 10%. Now it's 26%. Jeez, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big jump. One in four. Don't believe in God. So here's my theory. There's a lot of reasons, not just one. Uh, I, I think it's partly because the progressive culture that says there's no such thing as truth. It's all relative. So, which is absurd because people who say that think that's true. Right. But anyway, um, if, if that's true, that there's no such thing as truth, 
then why would anyone believe in in this made-up thing, God, that tells me what is true? Right? So, So in order to disconnect a person's connection to God, the ultimate truth, if someone can convince you that there is no such thing as truth, well, then that's that severs the connection between you and the person who decides what is true, right? Does that make sense? If there's no such thing as truth, then why would I believe in this thing that tells me what is true? The progressive culture says that, that Christians are bigoted and, and you can't judge. So why would I believe in this thing that is the ultimate judge? We have an education system that teaches evolution as gospel. So if evolution is true, why would I believe in this creator that made all things? My science teacher says we all come from amoebas and bacteria by chance. So why, why would I believe in the ultimate creator of all people? See, see how that, like you, can, you can understand how someone who grows up in this swamp of progressive ideology that says there is no such thing as truth, don't be a bigot. Don't judge. And you know, evolution, you grow up with all that. Like, why would you believe in God? So that I think all of these things play a role, but I think the main thing is, uh, dads. I think the number one reason why 26% of Americans are atheists is because of dads or lack of dads specifically. Can I ask you a personal question? And you can answer it out loud in your car if you want, or you can just answer it in your head, but just don't brush this off. Really answer this. Give a couple words that you would use to describe your dad or dads, you know, just dads, you can specifically your dad or just dad. So a few adjectives for your dad. I'm just, I'm going to give you a couple seconds just to think. And just start naming some out loud. What is the How would you describe your dad? All right, now those are good. Get, let's get, go a little deeper if you can. Those are really good surface ones. That's fine, but we got to dig through those. So go, go. Give me like one or two deeper ones, deeper adjectives for your dad. So. I had a great dad. My adjectives are on the positive side. My dad was encouraging. He was proud of me. He was uh, appreciative of, of little things, very loving. I had a great dad. But last weekend, I was with a group of guys at a church retreat thing. Very, uh, very high achieving, first class guys. And this conversation came up. How would you describe your dad? That very question. And I wrote down the answers. I just want to be very clear. The guys I was with, I mean, Navy SEAL, Marine, two Marines, uh, NCIS guy, big time DA, uh, someone who works at the you know major engineering company. These are pretty high end guys. Here are the words they used to describe their dads. I wrote them down. I want to see if any of the words you said are the same. Passionless exacting, demanding, absent, strict, 
cold, sour, disconnected, guarded, clueless, overbearing, reckless, distant. We'll stop there. Did you have words like that? Maybe not those specific ones, but words like that. So probably. So if this is how, now listen, if I was listening to this radio show, I would say, uh, no, but I would be in the very small minority. So if you're like, no, my dad wasn't those things. You just recognize you were in the very, very small minority. I was with 12 guys and I was the only one who didn't have words like that. So the point is, if this is how we view our earthly fathers, the people we know and we can see and touch and have had many direct interactions with throughout our entire formative childhoods. If that's how we view a person we can see our dad, how are we going to view a heavenly father? The exact same way demanding, strict, clueless, overbearing, distant, absent, non-existent, Non-existent is actually the easiest adjective to use for God if all the other adjectives that you would use for your actual dad is on the table, right? Why would you, if, if, if your dad is clueless, strict, demanding, why would you want a, a heavenly dad who's those things? It's easier to be like, I don't want a, I don't want a God that's demanding, strict, clueless, distant, overbearing. So it just doesn't even exist. So it's like easier just to cut them off. Like, ah, whatever, I'm an atheist. There's no God. That's crazy. We project onto God how we view our earthly dads. If your dad was strict, God is strict. If your dad was overbearing, God is overbearing. If your dad was passionless, then God is passionless. If your dad wasn't loving, then God won't be loving. Now, none, none of that's true, but that's what we think, right? Your dad is, was a broken person just like you. God is not. He's perfect. So God is not any of these things. But that's the fallback that we take when, when thinking of him. I heard a uh, story of a prison, and one of the prisoners asked, so there's like a prison ministry going on, and, and the prisoner asked the person who visited if he could buy him a Mother's Day card because he wanted to send his mom a Mother's Day note. It's a good thing, right? So the guy went and bought a card, and, uh, and then other prisoners found out about it. And they wanted Mother's Day cards so they could write their moms. So the guy's like, oh, this is great. So he actually went to Hallmark and Hallmark donated some money and went out, bought some other cars, collected some money from some people, bought a bunch of cars. So they brought back just this box, a giant box full of Mother's Day cards for all the prisoners. And every prisoner took one and wrote a note to their mom and sent it out. It's very nice. So a month goes by and the guy goes out and does the same thing for Father's Day. He goes to Hallmark, gets a big discount, goes to the store, buys a box of Father's Day cards. And he brought the box to the prison. And no one took one. I won. Why did no one take a Father's Day card? Because what, Dad? Either he's not there at all or he's no one you would want to send a card to. Incredible wounds there. And God takes the blunt of it, the brunt of it. I went 
just before Jack was born, like a month before Jack was born, my son, we went to Donovan prison. It's prison right on the border and met with maybe I don't know, 50 guys there. And I asked them, the prisoners there, what advice they had for me about becoming a dad. It was awesome. Every single hand went up. Every, I'm little, I'm not exaggerating. Every single person had advice and it was good advice. But when I asked, I asked the question, everyone is excited to share. But when I, we went around the room and everyone who shared every one of these prisoners, the whole tone of the room changed and every advice piece of advice was there from pain about their dads. So one guy said, don't hit your son. Another one said, make sure you teach him how to read a bike. Right? So it was pain because my dad hit me or my dad never taught me how to ride a bike or deep regret about what they've done to their sons. So, you know, sing to your son, teach him how to read because they weren't there for their kids. So I don't know. You, you may be discouraged that 26% of people don't believe in God in this country. I look at the state of our culture and our education system and all the rest. I look at that and I conclude, you know what? Considering everything, it's amazing that it's not way more individuals and businesses. So the way to solve that problem is a lot, but we need more dads. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the blaze. Wait, real quick, let me end with this. So the question that the group last week was, you know, how do you describe your dad? And then I asked myself, I said, well, when Jack is eighteen and is asked that question, what words do I want him to describe me as? And now I have to act like that every single day to make that come true. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word. Mike Slater. Hmm. Yeah. One more point on this. Then I'll get off my high horse. I promise. The, this, uh, this, is, this one's hard. <laughs> Uh, this, I'm, I was going to say, this is the best example I've seen of, but you know, we just talked about this in the last hour about the terrorist attack and how these terrorists can target and kill little girls. And still, we don't care, right? The, the manly side of us inside of us, the protector side of men, not, not enough to really do anything. And then even the nurturing side of women with abortions. We talked about that earlier. So maybe this is another example. We don't need to rank them, but just people spending a lifetime ignoring the obvious. And I just thought of this because, you know, we we're just talking about dads. So James Dean is the most famous male porn star. And he's tried to cross over. And I, I maybe he's been in like a, I don't think it's a mainstream movie, but like an artsy indie movie or, or a couple or whatever. And he was on the Dr. Drew show with Adam Kroll and, and Adam Kroll the other day. And he said, quote, it's the first time in my entire career I've ever had an ethical dilemma with what I do. Here's what, hear what he's saying here. So real quick, you should know the average exposure, the average age when someone is exposed to porn is eight, eight years old. And James Dean, the number one male porn star in the country, in the world says, quote, this is not okay. 
I would say very confidently that eight or nine-year-olds are not able to properly process what this is, especially when it's not just here are two people kissing and some standard sex. It's some crazy stuff. And I think now that people are getting their sexual education and stuff, you know, I'm sure it's better. So I've been told it's better when I was a kid than when I was a kid. But they're still seeing these examples regularly for years and years and years of what they believe to be sex. So kids are exposed to it younger than ever. It's just messing up their heads. And he's seen the effect that this has had on people. He's seen it himself. And he talks about how he's working, he's, he's acting, having sex with younger girls, right? And he says there's an intimacy that's uncomfortable for them. I'll do scenes and I'll grab the girl and I'll say, look me in the eyes. And she'll say, no, 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 no. I just blank. And James Dean says, but no, that's not sex. And he, he says, it just seems that there is this programming and desensitization to what sex and sexuality is. St. Slater, where the heck are you going with this? Let me quote one more thing and I'll bring it around. He said, I've had conversations with business partners, the people that run a bunch of adult websites. This guy, he's a father of two. And we were having a conversation about how I want all adult websites. I want everything to be behind an age verification wall. Real quick timeout. Think about this. You got the number one male porn star and the guy who runs these websites talking together about uh, mm, this, this, this stuff's not this really got to make sure kids don't see this stuff. This is really messed up. And James Dean says, you can't just say, yes, I'm 18. You actually have to input a credit card or something the best you can to create an 18 and older environment. And he said, I agree. He said, as a father, I agree with you hundred percent. I would love to do that. But as a businessman, I will go out of business in a day. I just wanted to share this because this isn't right-wing social commentator, Bible thumper on the radio saying pornography is bad for you. This is the guy. He's the most famous porn male porn star saying, wow, this old porn thing, it's affecting everyone, not just kids, but he goes on and talks about everyone. It's affecting everyone in really terrible ways. And I know people who want to get out of it who see the effect that this has in our culture, but we can't get out because the money's so good. He's talking about the ethical dilemma that he's experiencing for the first time in his entire life with what he's been doing for his entire adult life. He's like, geez, this is really messing people up. I I feel like when you get progressives, who say, you know, this aspect of our culture, uh, the celebration of casual sex and pornography is no big deal. You know, they, they take this self-righteous stand of you're a prude, you're a prude. I'm open. You conservatives, you're just prudes. I'm open-minded. Don't impose your Bible thumping on me and all that. And I'm I'm saying, geez, I haven't referenced the Bible one time in this conversation. It's not me saying it's bad. It's the number one porn star in the world saying it's bad. So maybe you should reevaluate your assumptions. The, the, the article of the Atlantic, the article, uh, the Atlantic of all places is titled James Dean's crisis uh, of conscience. James Dean's crisis of conscience. I don't know. I just bring it up now. Cause this is obviously another place 
where proper fathering could could enter um and when you got the guy saying this is real bad i don't know i think that's noteworthy all right move on um i want to talk next about something in california that will happen i may have referenced it in passing last week i don't remember uh, but I want to go a little deeper in the next segment. <clears throat> so California will impose a single-payer healthcare system in California. This will happen. So it's insane. And I'm going to tell you how much it costs in a second. I think last time we talked about it, there was no cost estimate. But now we have an official cost estimate. So that, that's why I want to talk about it again. So we'll tell you the cost, which is crazy. But it will happen. Nothing will stop this from happening. Now... When I first saw this uh, this plan, I said, this is, this is insane. There's no way this will pass. But then I learned that this has already passed twice. It's passed twice. But Governor Schwarzenegger vetoed it. So now Governor Schwarzenegger is not in office. You got Jerry Brown. So this will pass again. I don't know what Jerry Brown will do. I don't know if Jerry Brown would vote for it or pass it as governor. But our next governor is Gavin Newsom. He's even crazier than Jerry Brown. He will definitely uh, pass it. He'll definitely sign it. So it's going to happen. Uh, I'd say 100% chance it will happen in the next five to six years. 100% chance. Now, the craziest part of it, other than free healthcare for everyone, free vision, dental, you name it, is it's regardless of immigration status. So that means it's not only for everyone who lives in California, it's for everyone who lives in Mexico. Mexico is 20 miles from where I'm sitting right now. So anyone who come across the border just comes in here and gets free healthcare. Now you can just come across the border all the time. I mean, there's no, you just come across the border. There's no, you know, just walk across. Um, so you just walk across, get your healthcare and then what badly? Like, that's insane. But if they don't check what country you're from, they're obviously not going to check what state you're from either. So that means people from all over the country could just go to California for the day or whatever the week and get your surgery and come back. And then the, ca- the taxpayers of California will pay for it. Someone told me the other day, this is the straw that will break the, the camel's back in California. No, no, no. This is the boulder that will crush the camel. California doesn't stand a prayer of surviving after this bill. I'll tell you more about it next. one 888 one I read this great article in Newsweek. Would Californians be better off under single-payer health care? No, is the answer. No, they would not. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Perfect. Um, Here's the article from Newsweek. Would Californians be better off under single-payer health care? No, 
is the answer. That's that's simple. I mean, we can move on. But uh, I could not wait to read the analysis because I haven't read an opinion piece on this yet. I've just read articles. We, so we talked about this. We followed this bill early on when it was first introduced a while ago, a couple months ago. But now people are just starting to comment on it because it's moving forward through Sacramento. So, so single pair health care. I can't, I just want to make sure we're on the same page. This is, this is like Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders would love this plan. All right. So totally free. No such thing as insurance game on everything. hundred percent free. Go to the hospital. You go to the doctors, everything, everything is free. No copays, no nothing for nobody. So now I'm, there's commentaries that are coming out, which is great because listen, there's no way anyone can actually be for this, right? So this article was published in Kaiser Health News and then in, in Newsweek. So we have the cost now. This is the best part. When this was first proposed, there was no cost estimate. We were joking around like, what could this possibly cost? So now we know. So just a little reference before I give you the cost. The size of the budget in California 10 years ago was $100 billion. Now it's $180 billion. Okay, So it's almost double what it was just 10 years ago, and it's only going up from there. This so 180 billion. So imagine 180 billion dollars. Imagine that number 180, 180 billion. Universal healthcare in California would cost another 400 billion dollars. <laughs> so it's two and a half times the entire budget, and that's year one. That's per year, 400 billion dollars a year. What are we out of our minds? That's insane. So you would think that would be it. That, that's, that's the end of that, right? But no, the, the state senator who's in San Diego, Tony Atkins, she says, well, yes, it is a expensive, uh, what she say? She's a, uh, it's a high ticket item. Huh? So 40% of the California budget is uh, education. So 70, we'll go with $70 billion for K through 12 education, 70 billion and universal healthcare is 400 billion. Now here's the problem with that number. And actually let's, can we back it up a second? We'll put a time on, on this. And now we'll talk about the congressional budget office. So this was the news cycle. This was a storyline for um, a day, a couple of days ago. The, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office about Obamacare. The problem with the Congressional Budget Office isn't that they are partisan. It's that they punch numbers into models that can't account for change of behavior. Right? So, so when you throw numbers into a model and then numbers come out at the end, the numbers that, are at, that come out at the end are only as good as the model not really any different from climate change, right? You have a model, throw some numbers into it. Some other numbers come out and the, the numbers that come out are, you know, what the temperature is going to be in a hundred years. And you're like, well, I mean, that number is only as good as the model that you force the numbers through. And like, how good is that? Like that's impossible to take into account all the things in climate, like in the climate of the planet, sun, tides, or the ocean temperature. I mean, there's a million different factors. So the numbers at the end like are meaningless. And it's really the same thing with the Congressional Budget Office. They, they can't account for the change in behavior. I'll give you a, a, a simple example to understand. I, I'm sure we've shared this before. Um, a state will want to raise tobacco taxes, cigarette taxes. 
and they'll say, okay, we're going to raise the taxes by a dollar a pack. How much money is the state going to bring in? And they'll say, okay, well, uh, the people smoked this many packs of cigarettes and we're going to bring in another dollar per pack. So here's, uh, you know, $800 million, whatever. Well, that doesn't account for change of behavior because when you increase the price of something, people do less of it or they'll go to cross state lines or they'll go to the Indian casino or something to, to avoid the taxes. So it changes people's behavior. So the state doesn't bring in 800 million. They bring in 500 million because it changed behavior, but no model takes that into account. So that's what Obamacare congressional budget office, but let's bring it back to California. It's the same thing. So when they say $400 billion, that doesn't account for change of people's behavior. Well, what change of behavior is going to happen when something is free? Well, the opposite of when you tax it, when you tax it, people use less of it. If you subsidize it, give it for free. People are going to use way more. The other day I told you I gave a speech to some uh, sixth graders and, and one of the moms made me a bunch of cookies, chocolate chip cookies. They were unbelievable cookies. The best chocolate chip cookies I've ever had. I had 12 of them because they were free and sitting in front of me. If I had to pay a dollar a cookie, maybe I'd have three. <laughs> if they were $10 a cookie, I'd have, I'd probably wouldn't have any, but they were free. So I had as many as I could have before I threw up. And that's, what's going to happen with healthcare. People are just going to, have wastefully just it's just game on and people's are going to people are going to spend five ten times as much money as they currently do on healthcare because it's free and spend this much they're just going to get 10 times as much healthcare as they currently do which is wasteful at that point without even thinking twice about it so the 400 billion a billion dollars 400 billion a year that's going to be a trillion like that in year two it's going to be a trillion dollars i'm not even exaggerating Uh, let me see this, uh, this, so this article ultimately doesn't really come to a conclusion, but the fact here, okay, I'll read this. This is, um, again, this is Newsweek, a single payer system likely would be more efficient in delivering healthcare on what planet would it be more efficient? How could that possibly be more efficient? Is the DMV efficient? I have a triple a membership, not in case I get towed. I have a triple a membership so that I don't have to go to the DMV. It's amazing. You need to get your registration or whatever. You just go to the triple a. People greet you. You go to this line. There's no one there. Walk in. Boom. Done. Paycheck. Boom. Out. Easy. Piece of cake. Couldn't be more efficient. You go to the DMV. It's hell on earth. You think, going, you think government being in charge of, of healthcare is going to be much better than that? Give me a break. So the article doesn't come to a conclusion. It quotes a bunch of Democrats who are like kind of for it. They're not super decisive, but they're like, oh, you know, it could be good. What are you talking about? It does quote one Republican who said the impact on employers will be astounding. How can you say this will be fiscally prudent for the state? The state has never gotten anything right in healthcare. So this would be paid for through payroll taxes, which is insidious because um, people don't see their payroll taxes. It's a hidden tax. People don't see. They just see the amount in their check that they actually can cash, but they don't see all the money that's been taken out. So if they add this to payroll taxes, it's going to put a huge burden on businesses who have to pay half of the increase. And then people won't see the half that they pay. So people will think it's free when not only is it not free, it's two and a half times the entire budget. <laughs> think about it like this, just a little back of the napkin math. This isn't hundred percent accurate, but because it's not exactly how it's going to work, but just go with it. There's 39 million people in California, 39 million. They say this will cost 400 billion year one. Of course, it's going to be way more than that, but let's just go with 400 billion. So you split that up. 
that's $10,000 per person per year, per person. So a family of four, $40,000 a year for healthcare. 40,000. Now, what about the people who don't make any money? They're not gonna pay $40,000 a year. So let's say you take two families of four. You got my family, some other family. My family makes money, the other family doesn't. They're on welfare. I have to pay $40,000 a year for my healthcare and I gotta pay $40,000 a year for that other guy's healthcare. So now I'm at $80,000 a year for healthcare. $80,000. And that assumes that it's 400 billion when I just, you know, it's gonna be at least twice that. So I'm already up to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Like it's totally, totally, absolutely 100% insane. But I guarantee you it will pass. Because <laughs> it's California. 1-888-933-93. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Part of the next generation of talk radio. This is Mike Slater. Well, talking about government interfering with the economy, we got another story here. Why California's subsidized after-school programs are struggling to survive. This is awesome. So I read this article. Someone sent it over. And as I, I clicked it and as it was loading, I was thinking of all the reasons why after-school programs might be struggling. Right? I was thinking of reasons. Well, what could be wrong? Why, why are they struggling to survive? And this reason never crossed my mind. It should have. So here's the deal with these after-school programs. Uh, almost 900,000 kids, 4,500 schools. Uh, LA Daily News, for several big after-school organizations in LA, most funding comes from the ASES. I'll talk about that in a second. State lawmakers haven't increased ASES funding since they created the program in 2006. It's the After-School Education and Safety Program. Since then, costs have risen for organizations as... The minimum wage has jumped from six seventy-five to ten fifty an hour, and it's scheduled to go up again to fifteen dollars an hour in twenty twenty-two. So the after-school programs in California are struggling to survive because of the minimum wage. <laughs> Jeez. I was just talking to a business owner friend a couple weeks ago who owns a uh, t-shirt shop. Used to have twelve employees, now has seven can't afford the minimum wage and it's and listen, we don't need to go into a whole minimum wage thing but everyone knows all this stuff right you know all this even if you could afford to pay everyone $15 an hour the people who are currently making $15 an hour would have to go up to $20 an hour and like that's the end of that and the reason I thought of the story is because he also brought up payroll taxes he's like once the minimum wage goes up then my payroll taxes have to go up because it's a percentage of the wage no one knows this stuff unless you own a business and that's the saddest part of the whole thing really is Now, the business owner, so real quick on that point, like no one has the empathy for that. No one understands that. I was talking to a friend of mine actually the other day who worked for a business, worked for someone, and then he started his own business. And now he still sort of does that on the side, but he started working for someone else again. And I said, oh, what's the biggest difference, you know, going back to work for someone else? He said, oh, I have way more respect for my boss because I know what it's like now. I get it. Most people don't get it. But this one business owner did have a silver lining. He said his employers know who to blame. They don't see the minimum wage increase as a good thing. They understand the consequences of it and they are placing the blame accordingly on progressives. 
They're not thanking progressives for this. They're blaming them for it. That's good news. Anyway, so back to the after-school program. So the president of LA's Best, that's the the after-school program that's run out of the mayor's office. He said, over the last 11 years, the cost of doing business has gone up. Everything from insurance to supplies and materials, permits and fees, he said, and the funding has remained flat. Oh my gosh, this is an amazing quote. Do they not even know what they're saying? Do they? How could they not get it? So he's saying, listen, I'm running this after-school program here through the mayor's office, but the cost of business is going up. And he starts listing off things. Okay, champ, why has the cost of insurance gone up? Why has supplies and material prices gone up? Do you want any ideas? I'll just throw out one just because it's recent here in California. We literally, three weeks ago, Sacramento just voted to raise the gas tax. They just voted to raise the gas tax. So you're complaining that supplies and materials are going up. Well, I know we got some truck drivers listening now. How do you think things get from point A to point B? They get on the back of trucks. How are the trucks run? They're run by fuel. Now you got a higher gas tax. So now it costs more money to ship things. So the price of literally everything has gone up thanks to the gas tax. And then you got someone in the mayor's office being like, ah, oh, geez, you know, the cost of everything's going up. No kidding. And then the guy in the mayor's office is complaining that permits and fees have gone up. You're in the mayor's office. Like walk down the hall, talk to the mayor, your boss, and say, hey, stop jacking up the cost of doing business because it's not just for you. I'd like to let you know. It's not just for you, a person who runs after school programs in the city. It's every single business owner has to pay these. So welcome to there's a little dose of the real world. And then you say the problem is that funding has remained flat. No, because you know what that means? If you think the problem is funding has remained flat, that means you're going to go down to the mayor's office and just say, why don't we just take more money from everyone else? This is is infuriating. Because in the real world, when costs go up like they have for everyone, there's only so much a business owner can do. But when costs go up in government land, They just raise taxes and take more money from everyone. Business owners can't take money from people. And this is the greatest irony of them all. The greatest irony of them all. When it comes to politicians, they call business owners greedy. But business owners can't take money from people. Only the government can do that. And literally all they do is steal money from people. But they're never greedy. He says, already our programs have made some cuts by pulling back on staff training, field trips, and special events and operating with a thin administrative staff. Yeah, every business in the state has done this, which is why California is the highest poverty rate in the country and the highest number of people on welfare. So, thanks. One last point on the name. The uh, after school, so it's called the ASES. The After School Education and Safety Program. So just a little side note. Uh, I know we've talked about this before, but I like to bring it up whenever it is relevant. This is another step towards public boarding schools. And I promise you that it will come under the guise of safety. That's the point. It'll be, so this is just another step towards it. Because 
progressives, they're nothing if they're not patient. So everything they do takes a lot of time and that's fine. They're okay with that. And the argument's going to be homes are unsafe. Homes are unsafe. It's not safe to send kids back home either because of the crime outside of the home or drug use and abuse inside the home, neglect. or So they're going to say, listen, it's just safer that we keep kids at school. Oh, parents can visit if they'd like. Oh my goodness. Yes, of course parents can visit. That will absolutely happen. Already, schools provide breakfast, lunch. Some schools provide dinner. In the summertime, schools open up so that so kids can eat because parents aren't feeding their kids. And then people realize, well, the kids can't get to the school because it's summer. So now food will go on buses and buses will drive around neighborhoods and drop off food because parents aren't buying food for their kids. On Friday nights, kids in San Diego get sent home with backpacks full of food. If that's not the saddest thing in the world, because the, the assumption is that kids won't eat over the weekend because the government's not feeding them or because the government's not there to feed them because parents, of course, couldn't be asked to feed kids. It's, un, it's, it's sickening. So parents already aren't feeding kids. And then you throw safety on top of that. No doubt about it. We'll have public boarding schools. The only thing holding them back is money. But I predict Sacramento will exempt certain people from different programs like this. What was it the other day? Oh yeah, there was a proposal to exempt teachers from paying income taxes. (laughs) Right, so, so what they're going to do is they're going to exempt employees at after-school programs from the minimum wage. And they'll exempt anyone who has to work at public boarding schools from the minimum wage or whatever. Whoever, whoever, they, whoever they can cozy up to, they'll exempt from the minimum wage. Certain unions are already exempt from the minimum wage. So just keep an eye out for public boarding school and, and it's not going to come quickly this will be in like a decade or so uh but steps closer and closer every single year one 93 we're gonna come back um have you ever heard of kayfabe have you ever heard this word before kayfabe i want to talk about this i want to talk about how how i watch the news and I don't know, maybe you could pick up a thing or two. And, and for me, it, it changes how I watch news. And I think that's an important thing because it's, uh, it's all totally out of control. So I want to play that. And I have a story coming up next that uh, because of Memorial Day <coughs> that it's, it's, it's everything that's great about America. And not only the service members, but their families and our country it's so good we'll share that in the next hour as well mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word you're listening to mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on the blaze radio network and go for mike slater in three two one You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. 
That is America's the greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. I hope you have a, uh, a meaningful Memorial Day weekend. We're going to do this coming up at the bottom of the hour. I want to share an amazing story about, uh, about a veteran. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk about how we watch news. Have you ever heard of the word KFAB? Excuse me. KFABE. Apologize. KFABE. KFABE is a wrestling term, professional wrestling, for the difference between real life and living in character. So if you're in character, then you are maintaining kayfabe. If you're out of character, then you are breaking kayfabe. By the way, prior, so 1938 and so prior to 1938, newspapers published the results of wrestling matches. So like there's the there's the baseball scores, there's your basketball scores, there's your professional wrestling matches, there's your tennis score. I mean like it was just like a normal that was all the way till 1938. It wasn't too long ago. So so then after that 1938 then everyone's like oh it's fake it's fake it's fake. And I remember growing up people saying, "Oh, you know, wrestling's fake." As if it as if not everyone knew that. Right? Like why would you have to say that? Uh, you know, there's such thing as gravity. I mean, like, huh? So, like, oh, you know, you know, it's fake. It's totally fake, right? You know that, right? And for a long time, the, the WWE tried to say that it wasn't. And people would be like, oh, no, look, he barely, he barely hit him. And look, he fell over. He barely, t- barely touched him. It was just a couple years ago when Vince McMahon, the head of WWE, said, all right, fine, enough with this. Of course, it's fake. But we're going to call it sports entertainment. We're not going to pretend it's real anymore. We're going to embrace it's an act. We're going to ramp up the storylines. We're going to make it a male soap opera. Sports entertainment. So John Daly wrote an article the other day saying that there's sports and there's sports entertainment. Similarly, there's news and there's news entertainment. And we should watch news entertainment with the same posture, the same attitude that we watch sports entertainment. Rarely, first of all, but, but most of all, with an attitude of, oh, like, this isn't real, but I'll watch it. I mean, it's kind of entertaining. That's how we should watch news entertainment. That same, like, oh, like I know this isn't the full story. I know that clearly don't have enough information. I know the context isn't being properly provided. I know there's a lot more truth to it that no one's sharing, but yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to it and not get emotional over it. Like no one really gets emotional over WWE. I mean, there's big fans and stuff, but they know it's not real. So it's not that big of a deal. And it should really be the same thing with anything you see on news entertainment. It's, it's entertainment. There's, there's good guys and bad guys in wrestling. They're called faces and heels. There are storylines, there's teams, there's conflict, there's intrigue. It's just a it's soap opera. WWE is a soap opera and the news, news entertainment is a soap opera. It's just one big soap opera, which is fine. But the problem is when people think it's real and people think it's all there is to know. And I think people who think that news entertainment is real need to be shown the truth about it in the same way you would explain to someone that wrestling isn't real either. I think it's a good thing that the illusion of wrestling is gone because now you can appreciate it for the rest of its athleticism, right? Cause it's still, you're still jumping around and lifting people up. I mean, it's still a thing. 
so like you can appreciate that you can you can watch the storyline and enjoy that but you don't have to pretend like it's it's really happening and they really hate each other or whatever and i think that's actually good but what i want is the illusion of news entertainment to go away as well let me share one last story here about the lengths people will go or people went through to keep up the illusion of kayfabe so there's a wrestling manager back in the 80s and he talked about going uh, there was a you know a wrestling match and then they went to the bar in the hotel and you had the good guys and the bad guys all hanging out together at the bar just like as regular people and a group of wrestling fans walked in and here's the manager he says they saw us all together And our first thought was that they would think we all hang out together and we needed to protect the business. That's the key line. We'll get back to that. We needed to protect the business. So for some reason, we all started fighting each other. So think about this. You got The Undertaker and The Big Show who hate each other in the wrestling match. And then afterwards, they're with all the other wrestlers and they're at a bar and they're drinking, having a good time. You got The Undertaker and The Big Show. And they're just sitting there, you know, Jim and and Mark and uh, hanging out as Jim and Mark. And then some wrestling fans walked, walk in. And then all of a sudden, Mark turns into The Undertaker and Jim turns into The Big Show and they start beating each other up right in the bar. There we were, 30 guys in the hall hitting each other, working punches. We turned around and there was no one there. They were on the elevator and could not have cared less. I had a big knot in my head from a cribbage board. Another guy hurt his knee. We thought we were keeping them from being smart, but I think it was the other way around. So, so look at the lengths that they went through, that these wrestlers went through to keep the kayfabe up, to keep the illusion. Because the illusion was their livelihood. That was the business. I think it's the same with the media today. The lengths that they will go to keep their relevance, the things they'll make up, the stories they'll exaggerate, the lengths they'll go to to keep up the illusion that they are trustworthy and important. example the other day i know we quickly brought it up a couple segments ago but the cbo score the congressional budget office score of obamacare that's that's just a storyline in the news entertainment or i should say that's just a a a little plot twist in the news entertainment storyline there's nothing important about a cbo score and we talked about the drastic flaws to it earlier It's, it's a pretty meaningless thing but it kind of adds to the storyline, adds to the drama. It's an excuse to have a couple of people come on TV and yell at each other. And that's it. So I guess in wrestling, it would be, you have your storyline, you have Triple H and, uh, uh, I don't know, name another wrestler, Kane going at it. And then Triple H finds a chair underneath the mat and hits Kane with it. I mean, like that, that's like the CBO score is the chair, right? So it's just, it's like something, but it's not a huge deal. And then it goes away the next day kind of fit in the storyline. So, all right, fine. I'll use the chair. Someone, I was talking about this on my local show the other day and someone called in and said, Slater, why did the news not talk about the national news, not talk about the state trooper who was killed in Delaware? Uh, Because it's not, it doesn't fit the storyline because that, that person was confusing news entertainment with news. News would talk about the state trooper being killed. News entertainment would not because it doesn't fit the storyline of the day. It's not about Trump and Russia or whatever the storyline is. I'll give you another example. Uh, did you know that just the other day, 
bunch of terrorists opened fire and opened fire in Egypt and killed 25 Christians. They were going to church. These Christians were going to church. They killed 25 Christians. They injured 24 more. That it, I, I didn't I didn't know about it just by watching news entertainment because that's all it was news entertainment. It didn't fit the storyline. You have to actually read the news in order to find stories like that. Does that make sense? So I, my point is that we need to watch TV. Really, it's all everything on TV is news entertainment. That's pretty much my point. Almost everything. And it's frustrating because where is the real news? And like, it's kind of there somewhere. I mean, there's bits of news in the news entertainment, just like there's is real athleticism in wrestling, but that's the key. It's finding the real news in the news entertainment. And as I said earlier, if you watch wrestling today, you, you can say, wow, that was really impressive that that guy was able to pick up that other 300 pound guy and spin him around like that and not die. So there's realness in there somewhere. You just got to wade through it all to find it. I don't know. I, I, it changes how I view news. It's just news and entertainment. But now you got to take the extra length to actually find the news. one 933 I want to come back with a uh, clip of a professor that uh, he's talking about the point of college. And it's spectacular. You will love it. I played it on my local show. People freaked out about it. It's fantastic. I'll play it next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater, Slater, I love this clip. This is Professor Jordan Peterson speaking at Harvard. Uh, he's a professor in Toronto now, I think. About a year or so ago, he became popular and noteworthy because he said he's not playing the game with the transgender movement of Z and all these made-up words and calling men women and all the rest. Because Canada was passing a law. I don't know if they did, but a law that said it would be illegal to call someone by the incorrect preferred pronoun pronoun which by the way is against the law in new york city but this is what he said he said i will never use words i hate like the trendy and artificially constructed words z and zur i've been studying authoritarianism on the right and the left for 35 years i wrote a book on the topic which explores how ideologies hijack language and belief as a result of my studies i've come to believe that marxism is a murderous ideology I believe its practitioners in modern universities should be ashamed of themselves for continuing to promote such vicious, untenable, and anti-human ideas and for indoctrinating their students with these beliefs. I am therefore not going to mouth Marxist words. That would make me a puppet of the radical left, and that's not going to happen, period. So that's this guy. Or I should say, this is that guy. And this is five minutes. It's really good. It's part of a larger Q&A about postmodernism and neo-Marxism, which uh, it's a two-hour uh, video uh we will play clips of that uh more of it soon but this part here is worth playing right now here it is dr peterson you mentioned these ideas of responsibility of virtue of respect you've i think detailed what you think students shouldn't do 
in these examples of like protests and these examples of certain types of activist tactics. What advice would you have for students? How can students make the changes that they want to make? Particularly, do you have any advice for students here? Yeah, read great books. Mm -hmm. Really, man. You've got this four-year period that, that has been carved out of your lives by society. They, they, it's, it's given you an identity, like a high-quality identity, and freedom at the same time. And you're not going to get that again in your life. You've got, a, you've got a respectable identity, university student, and complete freedom associated with that, or as near as you're ever going to get. And you've got these unbelievable libraries that are full of the writings of people mm -hmm. who, are, who are intelligent and articulate beyond comprehension. And, you know, and, and you can go there and you can learn all this. And you might think, well, why should you learn it? Um, well, you, you learn it to get a job, or you learn it to get good grades, or you learn it to get a degree. And that's all nonsense. It's nonsense. The reason that you come to university to be educated is because there is nothing more powerful than someone who is articulate and who can think and speak. It's power. And I mean power of the best sort. It's authority and influence and respectability and competence. And so you come to university to craft your highest skill. And your highest skill is to be found in articulated speech. And if you're, if, you're, if you're a master at formulating your arguments, you win everything. And better than that, when you win everything, everyone around you wins too. Because to transform yourself into, let's consider, consider your transformation into something approximating the logos, it means you shine a light on the whole world. Well, there's nothing more exciting to do than that. There's nothing better you can possibly do. And to think that you're coming to university to be, you know, trained to have a job, it's like, great, that's a hell of a lot better than being unemployed and covered with Cheeto dust while you're <laughs> snacking away in front of your video game in the basement. But it's not, it's not a, and I don't have anything against video games, by the way. But, it, it, <laughs> but it's hardly a triumphant call to, to being in the world. And that's what university should be calling forth. It's like, God, you people, you, you know, I, I know what Harvard students are like. I taught here for five years. You people are spectacular. You're spectacular. You're, 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 you're all capable of being world beaters. You transform yourself into something that's articulated and sensible and grounded in history and knowledgeable and wise, man. You can do anything you want and hopefully anything you want for good. Because if you have any sense, everything you want to do would be for the good. Because there's nothing more compelling or meaningful or or useful in combating the tragedy of life than to, than to struggle with all your soul on behalf of the good. And the universities have forgotten that. It's why everyone's bailing out of the humanities. And they should. The humanities are corrupt. And they're corrupt because they're not telling students this. It's so bloody obvious. It's like, learn to think. Learn to speak. Learn to read. It makes you a superpower. An individual superpower. You have... It, it, and I don't understand why that isn't just told to students. It's not that hard to understand, and everyone wants to hear it. It's like, really, I could do that? I could do that? It's like, yeah, really, you could do that. And the whole society around you has labored for, really, thousands of years to provide every single one of you with this spectacular opportunity that you have while you're undergraduates and graduate students here, man. They're just, everyone's just praying that you would come here and manifest everything that you could manifest. And that's what you should be doing instead of waving placards and complaining about how you're oppressed, for God's sake. You see these Yale students complaining about their oppression. It's just, it just leaves me aghast. Mm. It's like, well, we're against the ruling class. It's like, no, 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 you're baby ruling class <laughs> members. You're young. <laughs> 
The only reason you're not rich is because you're young. You know, that's the best, really, that's the, if you look at the 1% even, the, the dreaded 1%, you know, most of those people are old. Why? Well, when you progress through life, if you're reasonably successful, you trade in your promising youth for your wealthy old age. But you're still bloody old. Would you, <laughs> would you trade it? Would you trade your youth for that? Like, if you factor age out of the economic equation, things look a lot different. Well, of course older people have more money. If they have any sense, they've been collecting it for their whole life. Is that somehow unfair? It's not unfair, unless you want to want to be poverty-stricken when you're 70. And you, and you don't want to be poverty-stricken when you're 70. So, I just don't understand what's happened to the universities. I can't mm -hmm. believe that you're not told when you come the first day, look, man, you are, you're here on a heroic mission. You're going to take your capacity to articulate yourself to levels that are undreamed of. You're going to come out of here unstoppable. You're going to be able to do anything you want. It's like, that's what you're here for. Mm -hmm. Instead, you're taught that, well, you know, the world's a pretty oppressive place, and you're probably the bottom of the victim pile, and, 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 there's, and there's, oh, there's virtually nothing you could do about it except, you know, deconstruct the patriarchy. And it's so weak deed and so pathetic that, that, that universities should be embarrassed that that's what they're peddling to students. I'm embarrassed by it. You know, I've, I've gone on public record telling parents, bloody well send your boys to trade school, because at least they'll learn something useful. And that's a terrible thing for someone like me to say, because I do believe that, the art, that being articulated and educated in the highest possible manner is there's nothing that's better for you and for society. Mm -hmm. And why, are the, why have the universities forgotten this? Well, that's postmodern neo-Marxism for you, you know. <laughs> that, then the philosophy of intense resentment and oppression mm -hmm. and group identity and God, it's just mm -hmm. pathetic. Not perfect. That's on our uh, Twitter. It's a couple tweets ago, so just go to Slater Radio and you can see it there on Twitter. I love this. Your highest skill is articulated speech. If you are a master at formulating your arguments, then you win everything. I, I love when he said too that. Um, you know, to these kids at Harvard, that society has labored for thousands of years to give you students this opportunity, and it's wasted. It's wasted. Almost every student wasted. I wasted it. My friends wasted it. We wish we could go back again and do the whole college thing again and actually learn things this time. But but I don't even want to go back now because it's a totally different school. I missed the boat. Because instead of, of going to, to a school today and, and, and being told that you were on a heroic mission, instead you're told that the purpose of college is, is to teach you that you are the lowest on the victim pile and that you won't amount to anything. And life is meaningless anyway. Who wants to be a part of that? Wouldn't you rather be on a heroic mission? That's what college used to be about, not anymore. What a shame. one 888 We're going to come back. Um, I'll share the story, I promise, of... Uh... This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Slater. Slater Crusaders, I want to dedicate this uh, this segment to, or because I, would, I wanted to give the segment because it's Memorial Day weekend. June 1965, two Navy planes in North Vietnam. One of the pilots was Lieutenant Commander Frederick Crosby of San Diego. Now, this day, there was a lot of cloud cover. So these two pilots had to fly low. But the enemy was waiting, and they were ready. And they fired all they had at the Americans. Crosby's plane was hit. He crashed I never heard from again. Crosby was a father of four. Listed as killed in action because the other pilots saw what happened, but they never found his body. Imagine his wife, four kids. And, and not only that, but, but never really sure. Ne- ne- the lack of closure. Deborah was the only daughter. She was six when dad died. Now, not only did she not really know her dad, right? She was only six, but every Memorial Day, when families go to grave sites, she has nowhere to go. Her family, they they never talked about it. I mean, it's all they thought about every Memorial Day, obviously, was dad. But they never talked about it. Deborah said, my dad's plane was shot down, and that's the end of the story. And he's there. Me, me, like, he's over there. That's always hurt me. But check this out. Yesterday, a flag-draped coffin was in the back of an airplane that landed at the San Diego airport. Yesterday at noon, this, this uh, airplane landed. And in the back was a flag-draped coffin ready for a burial site. How? How did Deborah bring her dad home? She never gave up. She worked with the Department of Defense to find his remains. Now, when she started, everyone told her, uh, don't get your hopes up. There's probably nothing left to recover. And she worked through the bureaucracy. Could you imagine working through that bureaucracy? I mean, but she didn't. She did most of it herself. She contacted the Library of Congress. She found declassified documents. She found the coordinates of the crash site. She mapped it out on Google. She reached out to the people who lived there. This is North Vietnam. She reached out to the people who lived there. And the people there said, yeah, there's, there's actually this, this field out here and there's an area in the field where the grass doesn't grow. And we heard that the grass doesn't grow there because there was a plane crash and there's a lot of fuel in the ground and it made the ground so that grass can't grow anymore. So she went to Vietnam and she found an 89-year-old resident there and she's like, do you, do you know anything about a plane crash there? And he goes in his house and he brings out a piece of broken glass. And he says, yeah, this is from that plane. He was there. 
he saw the plane crash. Not only did he see it crash, he was splashed with mud when the plane landed. That's how close he was to it. Well, that was enough for the Department of Defense. So they went to Vietnam. They excavated the land. And they, they sifted through the mud. This happened two years ago. So 50 years later, 50 years after his plane crashed, in the mud, in the muck, in a random field in North Vietnam where the grass doesn't grow and hasn't grown since, they found Frederick Crosby's wedding ring. You imagine. And they also found, well, they found that first, and then they kept digging, kept sifting. And they found some bone fragments. And they matched up the DNA from the bone fragments with, with Crosby's sister, Deborah's aunt. And it was a match. And Frederick Crosby's remains came home yesterday. More than 1,600 Americans who served during Vietnam are still missing. 1,600. We've recovered the remains of 1,035 men from that area. Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia. Isn't it amazing that there's people in the Department of Defense who are working on this. This one task alone is bringing back these men. So there's a gravesite now in San Diego. There's a tombstone. And it has the name of Crosby's wife, Mary. She died in 2002. She never remarried. Now on the tombstone underneath her name, it says, Wherest thou goest, so go I. She wore a pendant around her neck ever since her husband died, and that's what the pendant said. Wherest thou go, so go I. On his side of the headstone, it says Lieutenant Commander Frederick Crosby. He is home. I want to play Taps. I want to play Taps right now. Taps today is dedicated on this Memorial Day weekend to all the service members who paid the ultimate price, especially to those who aren't yet home.
on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. I hope you uh, have a really meaningful uh, Memorial Day. Take some time out. Go to one of the services nearby. Uh, On my local show, right after the terrorist attack, I I tried to articulate some feelings. And the next day I read some other people who did a better job of this than me. And it was nice because I, I wasn't the only one who felt this way. Uh, frustration with the routine. What routine? The, the, the post-terrorist attack routine. We, we just all do the same thing over and over again as if it makes a difference. We do the Facebook flag filter. Uh, we light up some buildings. Now we turn off the lights in buildings, right? We t- they, they turned off the lights of the Eiffel Tower and the Coliseum. And people draw hearts and chalk on sidewalks. And somewhere there's a random piano on some public park and someone plays imagine around it and people think it's amazing they weep and politicians hold hands on the steps of some building somewhere and people pray to gods they don't believe in and do this whole oh uh, you know we denounce this cowardly we're, we're, we will be strong together but at the same time the media is going to tell us that this attack or sorry this explosion or just a random explosion right this random explosion could cause could cause some anti-Islamic backlash, and that is even more tragic than the explosion itself. And that should really be the focus of our outrage. And I, I like that it happens every time. And I'm over it. I'm I'm completely over this whole routine. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be part of it anymore. I want to quote Declination here, and he talks about the um, you know the, this line that progressives give that not all Muslims are terrorists or not all muslims are like this and it's like yeah okay great yeah obviously not all muslims are like this everyone's on a scale right some muslims are peace some want to kill the infidels but even among those who want to kill the infidels not everyone's willing to strap on a bomb and blow themselves up right so it's all on a scale the problem isn't that all muslims believe in you know killing the infidel the problem is that enough of them do not that all of them do but enough of them do. Pew, uh, it's probably the uh, most trusted worldwide polling, polling service, Pew Research. And they asked a question. This was three years ago. Now, this is 2014. And the, the question was, suicide bombers can be often, sometimes, rarely, or never justified against civilian targets in order to defend Islam from its enemies. So suicide bombers are blank justified, always, or often, sometimes, never, rarely, or never. Suicide bombers are justified against civilian targets in order to defend Islam from its enemies. So they ask these to people in different countries. So these are the percentage of people who answered often or sometimes justified. Suicide bombers justified in killing often or sometimes justified in killing civilians. In the name of Islam, Palestine, 46%, Lebanon, 29%, Egypt, 24%, one in four, Turkey, 18%, Jordan, 15%, Bangladesh, for some reason, 
Those don't include the rarely, which is another 10 to 20% of Muslims. But be like, how could, and rarely, oh yeah, suicide bombers, you know, rarely justified, but you know, like sometimes they are, right? Could you imagine that if I, Christians, I said, you know, um, you know fellow Christians, uh, suicide bombers can be sometimes justified against, you know, blowing up civilian targets in order to defend Christianity from its enemies. What do you think? So, no, I'm going to go never. And I don't know any Christian who would say otherwise. So are all Muslims around the world extremists? No, of course not. That's, it's such a straw man argument that progressives even throw up. Like, oh, not everyone is. But enough are. So let's be conservative. Let's be very conservative here. Let's say 10 to 20%. I'm, oh, I'm being, I'm being nice here. Let's say 10 to 20% of Muslims around the world heard about the Ariana Grande terrorist attack and that this, this Muslim killed 22 people. 10 to 20% of people, 20, 10 to 20% of Muslims think that's a good thing. Now, we reject that. And people say that that can't, that can't be true because we can't fathom it. You can't wrap your head around that. That anyone would think this is a good thing. So because you can't wrap your head around it, you say, oh, well, no one could ever think that way. They do. Now, it's good that you can't fathom it. You shouldn't be able to fathom it. Like, thank you for not being able to fathom that anyone thinks that's a good thing. But now let's go a little deeper and deal with reality because they do. I'd say there are many people around the world who looked at the terrorist attack the other day and said, good. Praise Allah. Did every Muslim? No. Did your Muslim neighbor? No. Did your Muslim friend? No. Did the uh, Muslims at the mosque down the street from where I am right now at this radio station, did they all praise? No. But enough of them did. Enough of them did. You know, feminists preach about the the patriarchal society and how it's toxic and dangerous. And the feminists will, will go on this crusade against men. And they'll say, well, of course not all men are rapists, but enough of them are. They'll say enough men are rapists. Because even though a tiny percentage of men are rape, all the rest are silent or complicit in some way or a part of the patriarchy. Now, I would argue that way less than 20% of men either rape or think it's okay to rape or thinks it's sometimes or even rarely acceptable to rape. Which is way less than Muslims who think suicide bombings are okay. But for feminists, enough men is as bad as all men. And I'm here just making the argument, same thing really. It's not that all Muslims are terrorists, but enough of them are. And way more than men are rapists. Much higher percentage. Let's keep that in mind. Use that argument when someone says, well, not all terrorists. Yeah, yeah, not all Muslims are terrorists. Thank you very much, Einstein. But enough of them are. That's the problem. Slater Crusaders, uh, Slater Radio on Twitter. We can hang out during the week and you can uh, like us on Facebook as well. I'd appreciate that. I hope you have a, a really wonderful Memorial Day weekend. And by wonderful, I mean uh, meaningful, significant. Uh, take some time. Teach your kids about what it's really all about. Of course, it's not Veterans Day. It's Memorial Day. Very good. And we'll see you next week at Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.